you have a Bible with you, I want to invite you to find the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18. Today we get to observe and learn from an interaction between a rich person and Jesus of Nazareth. It's not the only interaction between a rich person and Jesus of Nazareth that we read about in the Gospels. There's a more famous one. In fact, there's a more famous one in the next chapter that we're going to read. Chapter 19 is where we read about Zacchaeus, who was very rich. And he had an interaction with Jesus. And that had a very happy ending, you may remember. He ended up uh, giving away half of everything that he had. This interaction in Luke 18 between Jesus and this unnamed rich person ends differently than that. And there is so much for us to see here and so much that resonates with our actual experience in life of wrestling with God and with sin and with just life in general. This, uh, this man comes and asks what he think is a, thinks is a pretty simple question. And then he just gets led into this deep dive into the contours of his heart. And so the hope is that that's exactly what's going to happen with you and I this morning as we get into this text. We may, we may come and maybe even on a Sunday morning in the summer kind of come with a yawn as we open the Bible and maybe get caught off guard as we're led into this um, amazing trip inside our heart and our life with God asking really, really hard questions. So that's the warning. Let's read what we find here, starting in verse 18, reading through verse 30, and then we'll pray and ask for God's help, and then we'll get into it, okay? If you are able to stand for the reading of the word this morning, I want to invite you to do that in in honor of God and his word. Luke 18, beginning in verse 18. And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? 
But he said, what is impossible with men is possible with God. And Peter said, see, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Father, we invite you to search our hearts. We invite you to purify our hearts. We invite your Holy Spirit power to do what only the Holy Spirit can do. Exalt Jesus Christ in a person. We submit our minds and our ears and our hearts to you and ask that you would come Holy Spirit and by your power do your work to exalt Jesus Christ in my life and in the lives of those who are gathered here. And we pray this for Jesus' sake and in his holy name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, the interaction begins in verses 18 and 19. Let's just notice two things about this man who comes and asks Jesus this question. Okay, we're, we're just observing him first, the, the question asker. And let's notice two things. First of all, he's approaching religion the way that we commonly approach it. That is, he's approaching religion like it's mathematics. Look at his question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Reminds me of myself, my 11-year-old version of myself, going to my mom saying, what do I need to do around the house to earn 50 cents so I can go buy some baseball cards? Tell me what I need to do so that I can earn this. Jesus, what kind of input is necessary for me to get the output that I want? I want eternal life, and what he means is that he wants to be among those who are saved at the resurrection of the just. So he's thinking end of life, eschatological things. What do I need to do to be among the saved at the end when everyone is resurrected? That's his desired outcome. So, what kind of input from me is necessary to achieve that end? So this is an approach to religion that basically sees it as a set of laws or rules that generate a particular outcome. So if I do this, then I get this. I don't think that this is an unfair reading of the passage or this man's intent. I think in all likelihood he felt very secure in his life, the life he was living then. I mean, he was extremely rich. He had all his needs taken care of, felt very secure, and he just wanted to know, okay, what else do I kind of need to be doing to guarantee that I'll always be secure? Just if I'm not doing things right, let me make a course correction now, do whatever I need to do to make sure that everything turns out okay for me in the end. 
he's, um, he's taking care of business. And what we're saying is that this is an approach to religion that sees it being more like math than art. Do you remember what Jesus says eternal life is? Do you remember John 17? When Jesus, knowing all things, defines for us exactly what eternal life is? John 17, 3, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life is knowing God and the one he sent. Eternal life is knowing someone. Eternal life is relating to God. Eternal life is relationship. Now, let me ask you a question. Would you ever describe your relationship with your mom or your dad or your husband or your wife or your best friend, would you ever describe your relationship with any one of those people as um, in terms of mathematics? Can a relationship be defined in terms of math. A relationship is messy. And it's unpredictable. And it's beautiful. And it's irreducible. We, like, we wrestle with people and we challenge people and we offend people and we have to forgive people. With people, we have to read their mood and we form expectations of people. And then those expectations that we form of people are like completely obliterated by reality and by surprise. And a lot of times our first impressions of people are wrong. Relationships are not like math. They're messy and wonderful and surprising. And to try to reduce religion to math is to fail to understand what religion is all about. The man doesn't ask a bad question, but in a sense, he does. It's a woefully anemic question. It reveals an approach to God that lacks awe and understanding and lacks an awareness of the enormous privilege that's before him to know God which is highlighted by his lack of awareness of who Jesus really is. And that's the next thing that we want to notice about this man. The first thing we notice is that his approach to religion is rather like mathematics. Second thing that we notice is that he's valuing Jesus the way that we all do. That is to say that he undervalues him. Does their initial exchange throw you off a little bit? Like the very first things they say to each other, does that concern you at all? This whole thing about being good? He says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. It would be easy to read this as Jesus saying, Hey, what are you doing calling me good? Like, don't you know that only God is good? 
I have been troubled by this exchange before, like for a long time, like not really knowing what to do with this. It seems like Jesus is admitting that he's not God, right? Did, did anyone kind of struggle with that? And like, what is he saying here? Like, he seems to be rejecting this label of good. Like, it seems like he's saying, hey, maintain a healthy separation between me and God, right? Don't confuse me with God. So what do we do with this? Why why does Jesus respond this way and what is he communicating about himself? Well, the first thing that we need to do is practice something called the analogy of faith. What that means is that when we come to something in the scriptures that we don't understand, that's hard to understand, we use other scripture to shed light on what we don't understand. We take passages that are more clear, where there's more light, and we bring them to bear on passages that are darker and harder and work towards meaning that way. So that's what we want to do. We want to take other scriptures that are more clear and bring them to bear on this one to help us understand what's happening. There are other places in the Gospels and in the rest of the New Testament where it's clear that Jesus is God. John 1, John 8, Philippians 2, Hebrews 1. That's just a a partial list. It's a few examples. So we know, we know for sure that Jesus is not communicating here. What he's not saying is, whoa, like pump the brakes. Don't call me good. Only God is good. And I'm not God. Okay, that's not what he's saying. So if he's not doing that, then what is he doing here in his response? Well, I'll give you my view. I think the rest of the interaction that they have supports this view. In in my view, Jesus is inviting the man to rethink and reconsider his view of Jesus. Jesus is basically saying, you call me good God alone is good. Therefore, what must that mean about me? Right? Think about it, sir. Consider what you're saying. See, the man is not wrong to call Jesus good. It's just that the man doesn't realize the import of what he's saying. And Jesus is inviting him to consider the import of what he's saying, namely that the man is talking to God. God in the flesh, and he doesn't know it. So Jesus isn't correcting him. He's inviting him to think further about what he's saying and realize its implications. All right, well, this man has two main problems. He undervalues Jesus of Nazareth, and he loves and worships something other than God. And that makes him an excellent representative of our race because I have the exact same two problems. I undervalue Jesus of Nazareth, and I love and worship things that are not God. 
Do those things sound familiar? Do you look inside yourself and say, yeah, I can identify with this guy. I'm so glad that this is the guy who's in front of Jesus because he has our exact problems. That means we can learn from him. What's going to happen? How is Jesus going to deal with someone who has our exact two problems that undervalues him and loves other stuff? Well, let's find out. Let's keep going. What is he going to do? The next thing that happens, the interaction has started. The next thing that happens is that the idol is revealed. This is the middle part, verses 20 to 23. How is Jesus going to do surgery on this guy's heart? Like he's got all these presenting problems. He's got this cavalier mathematical approach to religion that's just outcome-based. That's a problem. He's undervaluing Jesus Christ. That's a problem. His heart is attached to his stuff. That's a problem. Like, where do you even start? Well, let's notice how Jesus does his work. The first thing that he does is he takes this man as far as we typically go when someone wants to know about eternal life. Verse 20, takes him through a checklist. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal. If someone comes to you and wants to know if they have eternal life, you probably take them through a checklist. And I'm not saying that this isn't what I would do, but it probably sounds something like this. Someone wants to know if they have eternal life, you probably sit down with them and say, well, have you done this? Have you repented? Okay, check. Well, next thing, have you trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins? Okay, check. Have you begun to even exhibit the fruit of the Spirit? Like, is it obvious that the Spirit's at work because you're doing these things? Yes? Okay, check. And we send them off. We've completed the checklist. Have you done this? Have you done this? Have you done this? Go. You're fine. Now, I'm not saying that it's wrong to take someone through those steps. Like, that's good. The the wrong thing is if, if we just end there. And we always end there. We never take people further than that. If we want to convey to people the true nature of eternal life, a life of knowing and relating to God, we can't stop with the question, what have you done? We have to get to the question, what do you love? And millions upon millions upon millions of confessing Christians sit bored and unattached and directionless and glazed over with an impoverished view of eternal life because they've stopped with the question, what have I done? And have never allowed themselves to be examined to the depths and be challenged with the question, yes, but what do I love? Until we allow Jesus to go there with us and allow the Holy Spirit to sweep our hearts for idols, we will continue to look like this ruler. Religion is like math. If I've done these things, I get this. Jesus, kind of meh, undervalue. 
But what's really exciting about my life is X, Y, or Z, like this other stuff. In Jesus of Nazareth, when this man stands in front of him who's a good representative of us all, he does not let him off with easy answers. He doesn't just check these boxes and send him away. At every turn, he challenges his view of Christ. He challenges his attachment to his stuff, and he challenges his very approach to God. And those are the challenges that I want to put before you today. Brothers and sisters, we should not expect worship to be meaningful or enjoyable on Sunday when all through the rest of the week we have been constantly demonstrating that there's other stuff that's more worthwhile than Jesus. That it's, worship will feel totally incongruent to you and it will feel so foreign, like what on earth is this, if all through the week you're worshiping other stuff, constantly turning away from Jesus toward other things, toward your idols. You will be bored. Of course you will be. That's just natural. You will feel like you have no fuel left for the worship of Jesus if you're consistently and constantly dumping your fuel and your energy on your worship of your idols. Well, what are your idols? What are you giving your worship to? Maybe it's wealth and possessions and money like this man. Maybe your idol is success and this group of idols that goes something like success and recognition and achievement. Maybe your idols lie within this group, some kind of perfection. Your idol is um, a perfect family or a perfect body or a perfect image of yourself. Your idol might be universal acceptance, like to be popular. Universal admiration, just to be admired and respected by everyone. Maybe your idol is comfort. Boy, I sure struggle with this one. Your idol could be another person. It could be a hobby or a team or a cause. Food can be an idol. Security, peace, and equilibrium in life. Sex or a particular expression of your sexuality can be an idol. Or it could just be just being a self-determined person, independence, like pursuing your individuality and your self-determination, and that's what you're all about. And by the way, you can have more than one idol. Um, I have at least 10, okay? I counted up this week, at least 10. And if you're trying to diagnose, like, what are these things in, in my life that are my idols? You might find it helpful to just ask yourself, like, what are the things in my life that exert a greater power over me than the word of Christ? 
And what are those things in my life that cause me to betray my Christian convictions? Like when when this thing exerts its power, all of a sudden it's pretty obvious that I'm not following Jesus. These things gang up on us, and they're powerful, aren't they? I just noticed about my own heart this week that my heart is deep enough and insatiable enough to long for many of these things and worship many of these idols at full strength and always want more. I just wanted to give the Holy Spirit a a window of time this morning to examine your heart and reveal to you what you're worshiping. And at this point, if you have something in mind or you've got multiple things in mind, I, I think the steps are pretty simple. I mean, first of all, it's just name that thing as an idol. Like, own it. Say, I am worshiping this. And it's detracting from my worship of Jesus. Like, I'm pouring fuel on this all week, and then it's like, I got nothing left for Jesus. Just name it as an idol. Second thing is reject it. Acknowledge that it's in the wrong place in your life. And then exchange it for Jesus. This is something that needs to be done moment by moment in your life. Turning away from your idol toward Jesus. Later today, tonight, tomorrow. But in this moment, right now, while we're at our best and we're supported by all these other people here who are pursuing the same goal, we're kind of at our spiritual best right now in this place that it's really easy to to look at Jesus and see him clearly while we're here right now in these ideal circumstances. Let's look at him together before we go and just look and see what we have in him and what he's offering, okay? And try to get as clear a picture of him as we can. I want us to notice together two things about Jesus of Nazareth and what he says to the man in verse 22. Notice the audacity of Jesus to say, the audacity of him to say, get rid of all your stuff and just take me. This man, according to verse 23, was extremely rich and Jesus offers himself in place of all those things. Think of the audacity of someone to do that. You know what, if this man is, is really interested in eternal life, like if that's, what he, if that's the conversation he wants to have, eternal life, Jesus says, okay, let's have that conversation. Let's go there. Get rid of all your stuff and take me. That is the solution. Jesus knows something about this guy's stuff. He knows what's in the heart of a human. He knows that you can be that you can live in a beautiful place, in a beautiful house, and eat delicious food. And if he lived in our day, drive expensive cars, and at the same time surrounded with all that stuff, you can be empty. And unfulfilled and lonely. 
If that's you, if you have gotten to the end of your idols and seen that it's actually a dead end, the answer is Jesus of Nazareth. The one with the audacity to say to you, trade everything that you have and everything you could ever want for me, just me. And as audacious as that is, it's, it's more so. It's even more audacious than that because Jesus says to him, come follow me. Where is Jesus going? Jesus is on his way to suffer and die on a cross. So he invites the man to give up everything he has and join him on a road of suffering where not only will he lose his possessions, this is a road where life is lost. Think about the audacity of Jesus to say that to the man. Jesus didn't say, give up all your stuff and follow me to a better party. Give up all your stuff and follow me on a death march. How could you say that to a person? How could you invite them to that kind of a life unless it's true? Unless it really is the way to find life? Who would make that offer and who would accept that offer? We're turning away from our idols and we're turning toward Jesus and looking at Jesus and noticing this audacious invitation whereby we give up what we love and embrace Jesus. Just him and the path to his cross. And we allow him to lead us through hard experiences and uncomfortable things and excruciating pain and loss and lament and desperate prayers. But we are with him and we know him. That's eternal life. This passage sets before you today the opportunity to turn from all of your idols and your formulaic notions of religion and your low view of Jesus and accept his invitation and walk off with him into the messy, difficult, unknown. It sets before you the choice to receive and trust and walk with Jesus Christ. And at the end of the passage, we learn uh, three things very simply. We learn that choosing Jesus is difficult, it's possible, and it's wise. Choosing Jesus is difficult, but it's possible, and it's wise. 
It's difficult. It's hard for us. Leaving our idols is is brutal work. We're not going to pretend that it's not. This guy is not able to do it. He doesn't leave his idols. He goes away from Jesus sad. He keeps his stuff and he leaves Jesus. This is why Jesus gives us the analogy about the camel through the eye of the needle. It's hard. Choosing Jesus over idols is difficult. It's excruciating. It's really, really hard. But it's not impossible. That's the second thing. It's not impossible. It might feel impossible, but it's not. Who then can be saved? With men, it's impossible, but with God, all things are possible. I know that you've tried so hard to leave your idols over and over, and it can be really, really hard and depressing, and you're thinking, I can't do it. Sometimes we just need someone to tell us it's possible. It is possible. With God, because of the Holy Spirit, you can turn your back on your idol and embrace Jesus. It's not impossible because of God. Choosing Jesus is not only difficult and possible, but it's also wise. That's the very last point that Jesus makes is this is the wise decision. This is the more rewarding decision. It's Jesus' final statement in the matter. This is verses 29 and 30, that no one who takes the path of following Jesus will fail to receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. In other words, when you turn from your idols and embrace Jesus, even though you may feel like you're losing, in those moments, it's always gain. Not just a little gain, a many times more gain. In this life, and that's to say nothing of the age to come, eternal life. It means it's a wise decision. You know, this man who we're leaving now and we're going to go do our thing and we're going to leave this ruler in Luke 18. He didn't know it at the time, but when he left Jesus and walked away, keeping his stuff, he forfeited a treasure infinitely greater than the one he had. He was sad about what he had to give up. He just couldn't imagine and couldn't have guessed that the treasure he was forfeiting was greater. The opportunity to be with and get to know and talk with Jesus Christ was the greatest privilege of this man's life. And it was a privilege that he could have had every day and could have had forever. That's eternal life. That's what's offered to you today in the person of Jesus who presents only himself to you and a hard road in place of the whole world. What does that say about him? Who is he? And why do you call him good? Father, our hearts are so, so corrupt. I... 
There's this veil over our eyes called sin that causes us to look at Jesus and not think that much of him and to just think our stuff and our sin is so attractive and good. And that's wrong. That's not true. We need to be confronted by the word to show us what's true. Not only what's true, but it's just so wise to choose him. That we just make bad decision after bad decision after bad decision. We think the world is so attractive. And the word just shows us, here's this Jesus Christ who has the audacity to offer himself and only himself in place of everything. And that even Jesus on a hard road is still infinitely better than no Jesus at all in gaining the whole world. We need so much help. I just pray for the person who's never embraced Jesus and is just has their life rooted in idols and the pursuit of recognition and power and glory and feeling good and whatever, I pray for that person, for a a Holy Spirit-empowered turning to Jesus today to forsake that stuff and choose the Savior. And for the person who has known Jesus for a long time but just has undervalued him like I have and just poured fuel on other stuff, that there would be this turning to him today in simplicity to say, I love you. I come back to you. Let me walk with you. In Jesus' name, amen.